Thank you for being here and thank all of you that are watching online right now and listening later through the medium of podcast. I've received a lot of feedback on this series Revelation and I can tell there's a lot of interest in it. It's a very relevant book. John was a real pastor. He was writing to real churches facing a real crisis. Because the current empire demanded allegiance. Empires always do. And sometimes they cross the line. In this case, to be a good citizen, you had to say Caesar is Lord. And if you're a Christian, you can't go there. And so you had two options. Option one was to say no to that demand and face persecution. Option two was accommodation. To compromise. And when you read the words of Jesus to the seven churches, you realize that different churches were choosing the different options. And what they needed, what all churches needed, is a fresh revelation of Jesus Christ. A glimpse into a greater reality to help us navigate our current reality. So... I was thinking the other day about the all-time greatest Christmas movies. And I decided there are three that are far and away above all the rest. One involves a Red Rider BB gun. Do not email me to disagree. You would be wrong. (laughs) The other two involve Revelation. In both movies... The major character receives revelation that produces profound life change. So whether his name is Ebenezer Scrooge or George Bailey, both lives were profoundly impacted by the vision of a quite fearful future. Much of the book of Revelation is frightening. It is supposed to be. For the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. We're entering the least favorite part of the book and this week and next week We will read some things that are hard to read, even gruesome. When preachers visit other churches, we have what we call our traveling sermons. Those sermons that are positive and encouraging and uplifting that a guest preacher likes to bring. No church has ever called and asked me to come visit and said, Would you please bring a strong word on hell and damnation and wrath and judgment? But Revelation makes no apologies for the shapes of wrath. Because when it comes to evil, God is no pacifist. God intends to bring an end to evil. And he does it by bringing an end to evil doers. 
And that's not popular in a world that says, you can't judge me. But the God of Revelation says, yes, I can. And I will. And I have been praying that you would have ears to hear today. Because this least popular part of the book just might be the most important message of the whole series. Because over and over today, we're going to read the same word, wrath. And if you don't come to grips and even come to the place of celebrating the wrath of God, you don't get the gospel. So we're going to start actually in the middle of chapter 14 with verse 14. I looked and there before me was a white cloud and seated on the cloud was one like a son of man with a crown of gold on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And then another angel came out of the temple and called in a loud voice to him who was sitting on the cloud, take your sickle and reap. Because the time to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. So he who was seated on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth, and the earth was harvested. So we're talking now about global or universal judgment. Another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. And still another angel, who had charge of the fire, came from the altar and called in a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle, Take your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of grapes from the earth's vine. Because its grapes are ripe, the angel swung his sickle on the earth, gathered its grapes, and threw them into the great wine press of God's wrath. So the first shape of wrath is a wine press. I don't know a lot about wine presses. I understand they are stone pits where the grapes are put and then they are stepped on so that the juice can be collected and made into wine. Now, The word harvest is an interesting metaphor in the Bible. Sometimes it's used to talk about the ingathering of souls into the kingdom of God. Jesus said, the harvest is right. Pray for more harvesters to go out into the field. But oftentimes, especially in the Old Testament, and Revelation is always going back to the Old Testament, especially with the prophets, the metaphor of harvest refers to God's decisive move against evil. In fact, I'll show you exactly where John got this picture. It's from the prophet Joel chapter 3. Let the nations be roused. Let them advance into the valley of Jehoshaphat. For there I will sit to judge all the nations on every side. Swing the sickle for the harvest is ripe. Come trample the grapes for the winepress is full and the vats overflow. So great is their wickedness. So the point is simply this. God is going to crush evil. Since the days of the prophets, this has been the promise. That history is headed to an ending place. And God is going to crush 
evil. Now, this is an unpopular and a controversial doctrine on earth. But it is a welcome and a celebrated truth in heaven. Chapter 15, verse 1. I saw in heaven another great and marvelous sign. Seven angels with the seven last plagues. Last because with them God's wrath is completed. And I saw what looked like a sea of glass mixed with fire. And standing beside the sea, those who had been victorious over the beast and his image and over the number of his name. They held harps given them by God and sang the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. Great and marvelous are your deeds, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, King of the ages. Who will not fear you, O Lord, and bring glory to your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come to you and worship before you. For your righteous acts have been revealed. You see, throughout Scripture, God's commitment to justice and His determination to judge evil are viewed as a reflection of His holiness. God is holy. God is pure. And so, wanting to crush evil, wanting to deal with wickedness is just the essence of Godness. And in heaven, they're cool with that. In fact, God is praised for his wrath. We're going to see this over and over. In heaven, they continually praise God for his justice and for his wrath. Now, it's on earth that we have a problem. Let's face it. We don't write many wrath worship songs, do we? Somehow, God's wrath doesn't seem as pure or praiseworthy as his love. We fail to see God's wrath as an expression of his love, as his holy move against all that would harm what he loves. Because when we experience wrath, we experience through these fallen human vessels. And our wrath is unholy. Our wrath is capricious and fickle and biased and ugly and moody. But God's wrath is pure, strong, holy. It's his settled opposition against all that is harmful and evil. And maybe one of our problems with a God who is passionate about justice is we've had such a little amount of exposure to injustice. No one's ever arrested you for being a Christian. No one's ever broken into your home and taken your kids. You haven't lost your job. None of us have been martyred or know anyone who has. But that's not true all over the world. You see, oppressed and victimized people don't see a contradiction between God's wrath and His love. And they sing, how Long, oh Lord, until you do what you've promised to do about evil. This was the prayer of the psalmist. This was the prayer of the martyrs under the altar. Remember Revelation 6? How long, oh Lord, until you avenge our blood? And this is the prayer of God's children all over the world who hold to the conviction. That God will bring an end to injustice even when where they live it doesn't look like the court is ever going to convene. 
This song runs all through the Bible, all the way back to Moses. Remember, they were singing the song of Moses in heaven. Have you ever read the song of Moses? Look at the very last verse of that song in Deuteronomy 32. Rejoice, O nations. Why? What are we supposed to celebrate? Rejoice, for he will avenge the blood of his servants. He will take vengeance on his enemies and make atonement for his land and people. And this is what the book of Revelation tells us is coming. And so we saw God's wrath take the shape of broken seals and sounded trumpets. And now we've got the final set of judgments. John says, with this, his wrath is completed. We saw with the seals that a fourth of the world got judged. And then with the trumpets, a third of the world. And now everything's going to get judged. John is recapitulating. John is saying, this is the final time. And so we have the series of bowls. The first bowl is poured out and painful sores break out on all the people in the world who follow the beast. The second bowl is poured out and all the ocean, not a third like with the trumpets, but all the ocean turns to blood and everything in the sea dies. The third bowl is poured out and this time all the fresh water in the whole world turns to to blood. Now, clearly, he's drawing from the Exodus narrative. We've seen this in Revelation. He loves that story about the plagues on Egypt. And this is not saying what's going to literally happen. It's not like we expect all the ocean to turn to blood someday, and then a few months later, all the rivers are going to turn to blood. Remember, get the picture in Revelation. These aren't literal events. These are telling eternal truths that God is sovereign, and he is going to crush evil. And once again, heaven breaks out in worship because of this. Look at verse 5 of chapter 16. Then I heard the angel in charge of the water say, you are just in these judgments, you who are and were the holy one, because you have so judged, for they have shed the blood of your saints and prophets and you have given them blood to drink as they deserve. And I heard the altar respond. Now remember chapter 6, who's under the altar? The martyrs. And what are they saying? How long do we have to wait, oh God? And they finally get their answer. And I heard the altar respond. Yes, Lord God Almighty, true and just are your judgments. God's judgments are right. And we know that by the way heaven reacts to them. And we also know that by the way the earth reacts to them. So verse 8. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun. And the sun was given power to scorch people with fire. And they were seared by the intense heat. And they cursed the name of God who had control over these plagues. But they refused to repent and glorify him. And the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast. And his kingdom was plunged into darkness. And men gnawed their tongues in agony and cursed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores. But they refused to repent of what they had done. See, no man is going to be able to stand before the bench of God and argue that God gave them no chance to repent. 
God's judgment and God's wrath and God's goodness have all been poured out on this world to cause every man to think, is my way the right way? He stays his wrath to give us time to repent. But wrath stayed, is wrath stored. Romans 2.5 says, because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. You see, the point of these six plagues is just to show mankind is hell-bent on opposing God. And so, if we were to keep reading... The unholy trinity, the dragon and the beast of the sea and the beast of the land, also called the false prophet. It says out of their mouths come these creatures that look like frogs and they're demonic spirits. And they go all over the earth and they convince all the nations and peoples and kings of the earth to gather together to oppose God. To declare war against God at a place called Armageddon. Now, the problem is there is no place called Armageddon. Armageddon is Mount Megiddo. There is no Mount Megiddo. There's a valley of Megiddo where a lot of battles took place. Again, it's the picture that matters. It's the eternal truth. In Revelation, there are three different times where it looks like there's going to be a battle. Here, chapter 19, chapter 20. And the interesting thing is there's never a battle. God shows up, God speaks, and it's over. And the point is... The dragon is trying to convince all of us that we can do life any way we want and get away with it. That we can successfully oppose God. And the image is we can go to war against God. And the point is you're not marching to battle. You're marching to your eternal destruction. So verse 17, here's what really happens. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air and out of the temple came a loud voice from the throne saying, it is done. And then there came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder and a severe earthquake. No earthquake like it has ever occurred since man has been on the earth. So tremendous was the quake and the great city split into three parts and the cities of the nations collapsed. And God remembered Babylon the great and gave her the cup filled with the wine of the fury of his wrath. And so now we've seen God's wrath described as a seal, a trumpet, as a wine press, as a bowl. And now it's a cup. And it's poured out with the words, it is Done. And that should bring to mind another judgment scene that we'll come back to. I know these images disturb the contemporary reader. But do you understand how John's audience would have been encouraged by them? Those early Christians were getting clobbered. It looked like they had no hope And no future. And when they read this, they didn't get fearful. They got hopeful. They sang amen to the message of the wrath of God. I wonder why we don't. 
You and I don't have the ability or the authority to judge anybody. But do you worship a God that does? Do you praise a God who has the ability and authority to judge everybody? Because scripture consistently affirms that the wrath of God is perfectly fair. God is no replacement referee. In a game that's over his head trying to make calls he's just not qualified to make. There are going to be no questioning his calls in eternity. His Wrath is perfectly fair. And the church today needs this revelation of Jesus Christ. So let's dig just a little bit deeper. The one thing you've got to know about the wrath of God is that His justice demands it. Don't you get tired of living in a world where evil so often goes unpunished. Children can get molested. Little girls can get kidnapped and sex trafficked. People can sell drugs at junior highs. And no one pays for this. Doesn't that bother you? Isn't there something in all of us, innate, that says, I want some justice in the world. Do you know where that comes from? You're the image bearer of a just creator. And so to the oppressed and the victimized people of the world... The book of Revelation isn't fearful, it's hopeful. There's a lot of evil in this world that has gone unsolved and the courts say that the case is closed. Let me tell you, there are no closed cases. Because the only court that really matters hasn't judged yet. God is going to set everything right. Because a God that did nothing about evil would be complicit with it. And would not be worthy of your worship. And so over and over in heaven they sing. True and just are your judgments. And that includes the judgment of hell. Which God has prepared for the dragon. And for the beast. And for all who follow them. Because rebellion deserves his wrath. God seeks repentance. God gives every man opportunity to repent. He is patient, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. But the same God that seeks repentance says, without apology, he seeks vengeance. Oh, we have a trouble with that. Again, because like wrath, anytime we experience vengeance, it's ugly. In our fallen sinful vessels, when we try to do vengeance, it's capricious and it's biased and it's ugly. But God says over and over in his Bible, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Because his vengeance is holy and right. For example, 
That song they sang in heaven. For they shed the blood of the prophets and the saints. That word shed is the same word pour. God is going to pour out wrath on the people that poured out the blood of innocent people. And he's right to do that. For people who have committed crimes against God and his children, there's going to be hell to pay. And understand, hell is not going to be full of repentant people. We saw that. Hell is for people who would hate heaven because they curse God. Even when he judges. Even when they are caught in their sin and their wickedness, they still don't repent. And all judgment does is expose what their hearts are like. And so in heaven, there is a community of people who celebrate and rejoice and say, Thy will be done. And in hell, there's a community of people who say, I want my will done. And God says, then you have your way for eternity. You have eternity of your way, and I'm not in the way. And so God takes his love and his light and his joy and his peace and his patience and his goodness. And you spend eternity without it. Because that's what you wanted. And it's hell. Some of you are thinking, "Uh uh-oh. Preacher went all fundamentalist on us. He's trying to scare the hell out of us. No, I'm trying to scare you out of hell. By the way, Jesus did too. Jesus said in Matthew 10, 28, Do not fear the one that can kill the body, but fear the one that can throw the body and the soul into hell. Now, I wouldn't want anyone to stay there. I would want you to grow in your relationship to God and you want to go to heaven because you love God and you love Jesus, but I don't mind if you start there. Some of you need to come to serious, deep conviction of your sin. Of your great need to repent and stop opposing God. And it needs to scare you what eternity looks like if you keep fighting God. The revelation of Jesus Christ should fill us with a sense of urgency. Nobody warned about hell more than Christ. Because nobody more than Christ knew what sin was going to cost. And it should burden us that we're not very burdened about people going to hell. Thirty years ago on Easter Sunday, Pastor Kifa Simpangi disobeyed Idi Amin's strict orders. The despot of Uganda who was killing and persecuting Christians had said no services, but he met in his village at the football stadium and 7,000 came as he preached the resurrected Lord. And as soon as that was over, Amin's soldiers followed him back to his church. They locked the doors and five men pulled out rifles and pointed at his head and said, what are your last words before you die? And here's what they were. The word of God says that in Christ, I am already dead. And that my real life is hidden with him and God. It is not my life that is in danger, but yours. 
I am alive in the risen Lord, but you are still dead in your sins. May he spare you from eternal destruction. And after a long pause, they put down their guns and asked him to pray. He led them to Christ. They became his personal bodyguards during the rest of a means reign of terror. Hell is real. And real people will go there. And there will be no mistaken convictions. There will be no overturned verdicts. There will be no appeals. Because righteousness determines His wrath. God is continually praised in heaven because His judgments are right. Now, this is why we leave the business of judgment to God. Hear me close. You don't have any business judging anybody. Your job is to love everybody, even your enemies. You don't know the heart of men. It could be that the vilest person you know might be this close to repenting. You and I love people. Our righteousness doesn't qualify us to judge anybody. But God's righteousness qualifies him to judge everybody. And he will. And in his court. And only in his court. Will the playing field be level and every verdict will be right. Playing field is not level on earth. Some people will always have more advantages. Some people will always be able to avoid... I mean, to pay better lawyers. But in God's court, it won't matter. It won't matter what color your skin was. It won't matter how many degrees you had. It won't matter how rich you were. It won't matter who your granddaddy was. You realize God is not eager to get anybody's autograph? It won't matter. God will render His verdict, and it will be right. And that raises the most important question of the universe. If God can only do what is just, and we are guilty, what's our hope? How can God be just and justifier? Do you remember when that cup of wrath was poured out? The words, it is done. Where else in the Bible did you hear those words? You see, the most important shape of the wrath of God is a cross. John's been pulling out of the plague story through the whole book. Remember the last plague? God said, I'm going to send the angel of death over the land. Put blood Of the lamb on the door. Because when it comes, when my wrath comes, it's not going to matter if you're Egyptian or Israelite. It's not going to matter who your great granddaddy was or how many Bibles you have in the house or how many praise CDs you have in the console. One thing's going to matter. Were you covered by the blood of the lamb when the just wrath of God visits? At Calvary. 
Jesus drank the cup of the wrath of God. The night before he prayed, is there any other way that this cup could pass? And on the cross, the full cup of the wrath of God for sin was poured out on the Lamb. Like we sometimes sing. For on that cross where Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. I read an article by a woman named Christy O'Brown who was playing tennis with a friend and they were between sets sitting down taking a break and her friend had these two braces on both knees with two scars and she thought they might be tennis related so she asked and here's the story she was told that several years earlier this woman who was seven months pregnant was picking up her toddler out in the back by their pool and as she walked across the wet stile trying to go up a step she slipped and she's about to fall holding one baby carrying a baby in her womb. And she had a quick choice to make. Because if she throws out her hands, she drops her child. If she falls, she crushes that baby in the womb. And so she instantly lurched her body so that her two knees would slam hard against that step. They instantly busted open, blood spurted, stitches in emergency room required. And every mother here would have done the exact same thing. Those are scars of love. And it's not a coincidence that whenever you see the Lamb in Revelation, He has scars. He'll carry those scars for eternity. Because He took the wrath of God. In Christ, God took His own medicine full strength. Because as Paul says, God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Don't complain about the wrath of God. It's to be celebrated. His wrath is good. His wrath is holy. His wrath is pure. His wrath is right. His wrath is perfectly fair. What's completely unfair is the grace of God. You don't stand before God and say, just give me what I deserve. You don't want what you deserve. You want grace. People don't get this. People think the gospel is that God's going to save the good people and he's going to condemn the bad people. There are no good people. There was just one good person. People think the gospel is, well, God's just going to blow off sin and wink at it and say it doesn't really matter. Wrong. His holiness won't let him do that. Here's the gospel. That through Christ, the wrath you deserve can be atoned. And the righteousness you don't deserve can be attained. Because your sin will meet the wrath of God but in his grace God lets you choose where where will you choose to meet the cup and if you choose the cross you're in good shape
Because Jesus rescues us from the coming wrath. This is a heavy lesson, isn't it? I know you're feeling beat down. Think about me. I've had to hear it three times. (laughs) And it might just be the difference for eternity for someone here who finally has ears to hear. Let's pray. Oh, God. Bring us to understanding and conviction of these things. How can we trifle with such a holy God? How can we play with sin the way we do and dabble in iniquity? Do we not know who you are? Increase in us, God, the passion for purity and holiness. Increase in us the nauseousness for sin. And increase in us the burden for people to meet Jesus. To be covered by the blood of the Lamb. So that your just wrath is met in Him. I just believe someone listening to my voice right now, God, has an eternity-shaping decision to make. And I pray they have courage to make it today. For Jesus' sake. Amen. So, we told you that last um, week we had 17 baptisms. They were all precious. But I was especially blessed by one. Several years ago, a little boy single parent home came to our church and upwards ministry got involved in our sports program he got to know Charlie Taylor and he asked Charlie recently if he could baptize him into Christ and so last Sunday that happened his name is Brandon McKinnis and just before he was baptized Brandon gave Charlie this note I want to give my life to Jesus Christ because he is my savior Because he died on the cross for me. If somebody died on the cross, there would be no equal. I also know there's nothing I can do to earn salvation. I have to accept it. I need Jesus to be my Savior. Because I don't want to be Satan's roommate. I know I am a sinner. So I need Jesus to forgive my sins sins I will thank you for all my life and I don't think that note was for Charlie I think it was for you because some of you have not let Jesus forgive your sins would you all stand We're going to have leaders of our church down front to receive people for prayer and to receive people who are ready to make that great decision to be covered by the blood of the Lamb. You may not have come today planning to make that decision, but you know in your heart right now, you need to make it. And we're ready to help and to bless.
Because if you leave your sin at the cross, you're in good shape. 